Well, welcome to another edition of The Plotting Shed. You're listening to Rachel McCartone. I hope everybody is well. Do you know, I was sitting and thinking about what I was going to talk about this week. And I've been doing a lot of work on my Pinterest account and pinning things, which has meant me sourcing images and looking through images on the internet of gardens and gardening and garden design and all sorts of things. And it struck me that so many of the images of of gardens that people see won't actually and can't help them work out and plan how they were going to design their own garden. And so I thought I would run through seven very simple rules that you can use to design your garden better. Now, this won't create a garden that will look like something out of a Chelsea flower show. It won't create a garden that has cost thousands of pounds to build. It won't create a garden that turns your little patch outside the backyard or the back door into a a utopia of abundant flora and fauna, but it will make your garden a better and nicer place for you to be in. It will be more interesting. You will enjoy being in there more. So I thought I would go through the rules that I use when I'm looking at designing people's gardens. Before I do, I thought I would read up on how gardens are supposed to be designed and if you were buying a book, the terms and the language that designers tell you to do. And I, and I was looking and reading these, these, these books and I thought, do you know what? I really don't get it. I don't understand the language that some designers and some books use in order to convey what the, tr- the idea that they're trying to put over to you. For example, if you search what are the principles of garden design, you'll come, it'll come back with a number of words. These would be order and balance and proportion, emphasis, harmony, unity. Then you'll also read and hear that there's things like flow and the transition and rhythm in the garden. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't mean a great deal to me. And especially if I was a person who was not an expert gardener, if I was somebody who just had got my first garden or I'm sitting there, I've moved into a house and I've inherited somebody's garden and it isn't how I want it to be, how are those terms and words and phrases going to help me work out what to do with my garden? They simply won't. I mean, what does balance and proportion and rhythm and transition mean? It has no relevance. And... As a person who designs gardens for more, you know, for for everyday use, as opposed to show gardens or amazing looking gardens, you need to communicate what people need to, to understand in a different way. You know, a designer telling you in design speak what to do doesn't help you, but somebody telling you in everyday terms that you can relate to will help you. So I hope these these do. So there are seven simple rules that the average everyday non-expert gardener can use to 
remodel, rework and improve the design and the feel of their garden. So I'll just run through them and then I'll do a little bit of an explanation. In other words, you can turn off the podcast after you've listened to these first seven, seven sentences and then you don't have to listen to the rest, but I hope you do. Rule one, plan the garden around the best place to sit. Then, don't make borders, create shapes instead. Avoid following the lines of the fences. Rule four is that you should never be able to see the whole length of a fence. Rule five, paths shouldn't only lead to the garden shed. 80% of the plants should offer more than just being a pretty flower. And finally, you need to plan the planting from the eye level up or down and not from the bottom up. So what do I mean by all of this? Planning the garden around the best place to sit and Incidentally, you'll find the notes of this podcast and the link to the post on my website, plumplots.com. You'll find the link there. You can go and read it and see the pictures and everything else that I've put on there, which I hopefully will help you. So planning the garden around the best place to sit. I see so many examples of gardens that have been built by landscapers um, or designers and the patios are created to look amazing and they look fantastic, but they might not be sited in the place that the person will sit out the most because the sun will always rise and set in the same way. The sunny spots of the garden and the shady spots of the garden will always be the same and we all do it. We all have a spot in the morning. We like to sit outside and have breakfast or a coffee And then there is usually a place somewhere else in the garden that catches the last rays of sunshine that we've got in that time of day that we like to go and sit in. From my perspective, the most common sense approach, especially if you have a small garden, is that that's what you do. You plan it around where the nicest place is to sit. So once you're sitting there, the next question begs itself is, how do you get there? Do you need a path? What is the route that you are going to take from the back door to the place that you are going to sit? And then this throws up one further issue that when you're sitting there, you need something nice to look at because gardens have to do something. And that's not just look amazing. Gardens have to make us feel something. Either that might be that we feel relaxed or we feel content because we're sitting in an environment with the sun on our face and a nice glass of wine and the birds are singing. But that's what the garden is delivering. It's not delivering a visual impact. It's delivering an emotional one. So when you're at your favourite place and you've worked out how to get to your favourite place, then you need to say, okay, when I'm sitting there, what can I look at? And then there has to be something worth looking at that is more interesting than the fences, the walls, or or the shed. You you need a look at me instead border. So rule two is about making, not making borders, but creating shapes. Again, one of the most common design mistakes that I see especially when I have customers sending me pictures of their gardens because they're wanting to do something and change them and they don't know what, is 
that you can see very definitely that people have built borders. So they have created a shape for a border to put plants in. Now these can be long and thin, or they might be long and thin with a wavy edge, or occasionally they're round ones or square or rectangular. Now this creates a problem because in any suburban garden, two shapes dominate your visual point of view. First of all is the overall shape of the, the boundaries of the garden, and the second one is the shape of the lawn. Now the problem is, is that if the borders have been created, then the lawn has to fit to the shape of the borders. The shape of the lawn then gets warped, but because that this is one of the biggest things that you see the most noticeable, that weird wobbly shape is brought front and centre. One of the things, the great things about plants, is that they're really good at hiding odd shapes. So this is what you need to do, rather than create the borders, you need to start with the lawn and make a shape. It can be a circle, it can be a sweep, it can be a rectangle, diamond, whatever you like. It doesn't even have to be a complete shape because you can offset the angles, you can cut off part of the lawn shape. But as long as you have that regular line that people think, oh yes, that's a sweep of a curve, they will see in their mind's eye the circle. If part of the square of the lawn is cut out, they will still see the lawn as being square. So the borders become the bits that are left over. Once you've planted these and the plants have grown up, the odd shape of the border disappears and you get left with a nice shape, a nice visual looking big lawn shape. And the plants then work with that rather than imposing the border shape on the garden. So rule three, avoiding following the fence lines. Now, the reason I've explained this is because the way that humans look at things, and, and it's something that I'm, it's something I've written about a lot in posts and on pages on my website, and also in the book that I have recently published called I Want to Light My Garden. And what you need to understand is that humans notice two things. First of all, when we're looking at things, we are pre-programmed to notice movement. This is an evolutionary throwback that saved early hominids from being stalked by predators. We notice the smallest thing that moves so we can pick up danger. But the second thing that we tend to do is our eyesight and our vision and our gaze will follow lines, whether they're curved or whether they're straight, we will follow the line to the end. It guides our vision to a particular point. Now, gardens have lots of lines um, and the most notable lines in any garden are the boundaries that, that we all have. And these can be fences or walls or hedges. If the garden borders that you create follow the lines of those boundaries and fences, what you then do is you reinforce the boundary. You make it more of an important feature. You're saying, in effect, that the boundary defines the garden. And so all the plants are showing you, follow the line, follow the line of this garden. Now, that might be fine, but what it does do is it creates, it reinforces where the edges of your garden are. It makes them more noticeable. And that can have the impact of making the garden feel smaller and more enclosed. 
So you need to redirect the border lines or the lines of the lawn in a different way. Then you can redirect your gaze. You can use those lines so that you start to look at the bits of the garden that you actually want to see and not the bits of the garden that are trying to capture your attention, which aren't so good. This follows on from rule three, which is rule four, which is that you should never be able to see the whole length of the fence. And again, this is because of the visual dominance of lines and the fact that we our gaze follows a line from start to finish. If we break up that line, it makes it less noticeable. But fences are very visually dominant, not just because of the lines. It's just that there's usually most gardens have an awful lot of fencing. And all of that fencing is at eye level. It's simply impossible for you not to notice them. So the plan of action that you need to use is to actually try and reduce the amount of visible boundary you have and break it into smaller chunks. If some of the objects or plants that you use are also taller than that fence, you break up its linear dominance. So you notice the fence less and you notice other things more. Rule five is all about the shed. Now, most gardens need storage. Well, in fact, all gardens need storage space, don't they? We have, there is a whole bundle of detritus that goes with the garden from the lawn mowers to power tools, to spades, to shovels, to pots, to just place to put the kids toys and the footballs and just anything else you can't fit in the house goes in the shed. But there does seem to be a train of thought that states that there, a shed must have a path that leads up to it. Well, why? Why, you know, why do we need to do that? Because if you think about it, if you actually sat there and thought, how often do I go to the shed? Is it once a week? Is it once a fortnight? Do I go to the shed at all in the winter time? And you actually timed how how often you use the path to get to the shed. You might be surprised at actually how little that particular path is used. But paths, again, because you've got lines of the path and they're, they're usually a different colour to the surrounding grass, what have you, again, paths are really visually dominant in a garden. So if you have a path, that only leads to the shed, what you are basically designing into your garden is look at the shed. And let's face it, sheds aren't usually the most attractive garden feature that we have. If you think what a path needs to do, a path is is walked on for a purpose, it's to get somewhere. Now, you might well need to go and get something out of the shed, like the lawnmower, for example. But do you walk back from the shed on the path? Because normally if you've taken the lawnmower out, you'll shove it on the grass and you'll mow around and then you'll take it back to the shed, probably not by the path, and just plonk it back in again. And it only takes a few seconds that the path is only actually being used for a very tiny amount of time. So in any small garden, the most well-used route in that garden should really need a path. But is the route that you're putting in the garden to the shed the correct one? It may be that there is a part of the garden that you use more than ever because it's the nicest part to sit in. Now, that route needs the path. So if it happens that that leads to the shed as well, or there's a, you can have a little junction and it goes to the shed, fine. But you're not then making the shed a design issue. 
make the path the route to somewhere you like to go and then the path becomes a nice feature as opposed to just simply something that's there because everyone hasn't challenged the concept of why a shed needs a path or doesn't need a path. Now the last two rules are about plants. What I've said in rule six is that 80% of the plants that you use in the garden should offer more than just being a pretty flower. So what do I mean? What on earth is all that about? Well, garden sizes have been shrinking, haven't they, over the last few decades? They've been getting smaller. We have, especially for new house builds, gardens are becoming increasingly smaller and smaller and smaller and more odd shapes and everything else. What that means is that the plants that you use in the garden, because you can't have very many of them, or as many as we might have been able to put in in the past, the plants that you do use have got to work hard. Now, if all that you do in terms of choosing plants is wander around a garden centre and get seduced by the big block of plants in colour that the garden centre is selling you, and you take those home, yeah, you get a nice visual impact of all the plants with colour. But if those flowers only last for three weeks, how's the plant going to really make your garden fantastic for the other 49? That a simple rule of thumb that you can use when you're choosing plants for the garden is to actually pick up the plant and look at it and say, okay, aside from that lovely flower, that this plant has, what else is it going to do for me? How is it going to benefit me in my garden? Now, it could be that this plant has scented leaves, or it could be that the foliage changes colour throughout the course of the season and is really attractive. It might be that the plant is really nice to run your fingers through, or that it just makes sways in the breeze and is really, really pretty. But the point is, it's doing more than one thing. You know, we have five senses. We have sight, we have smell, we have sound, we have touch and we have taste. So if you've only chosen a plant to satisfy one of your senses, 80% of your senses aren't being stimulated in any way. So it's just a little rule of thumb. Make the plants work harder for your garden. Finally, and my last rule, and this is a bugbear, I have to say, when I walk around and I walk around where I live and you see gardens, that there seems to be an issue that people have, especially when we have smaller sizes, that we put smaller plants in. And because the horticultural industry has changed over the last few decades and is now dominated by DIY stores and garden centres selling an ever-increasingly limited range of plants and this dearth of bedding plants. How many of the gardens that you see have plants that are only really coming up as high as your ankles or maybe up to just below your knee height? So my argument is this. If you're walking around the streets, if you're walking around your garden, do you walk around staring at your feet in the ground? Well, of course we don't. We just stare straight ahead. And you should apply this same principle to when you're planting. So let's just say we go back to our original rule number one, which is that you should always 
design your garden from the most favourite part of the garden where you sit. What you need to do is you need to go and sit there. When you're seated, that's where your eye level is. And at the border that you're planning on putting, your look at me border, you need to put plants that hit your eye level first. And then you create plants, you can put plants that will grow underneath that and plants that will grow above that. But you've got to have something nice to look at as you're sitting without staring at the ground. Now, the problem with planting from a bottom up perspective is that if you put plants in the garden border that fill up at ground level, you fill the ground level. You don't leave space for anything to grow taller than that. So what tends to happen is that people put a trellis up and put a climber up because the climber doesn't use much space at ground level. But the problem with that is you then tend to get this umbrella approach. You have a little bit along the bottom and you have this umbrella canopy of a climber that grows over the top, which cuts the light out underneath, which means that the plants don't grow as well and you get a gap in the middle, which funnily enough is exactly eye level when you're sitting down. Similarly, if you're, say, standing in the kitchen staring out of the back window, where's the eye level that you see? And you've got to create some planting or plants of interest at that level around the garden. So a really good tip to use is to actually just find a really gorgeous plant that you like and pop it around the garden in a few places, because this will help you look for it. And it will also make the planting seem a little more coordinated and look like you've thought about it but because it's a nice thing to look at at eye level it holds your interest and the garden feels better the garden makes you feel better and you won't have had to have spent a huge amount of money and you won't have had to have hired designers or expensive landscapers these are all simple easy practical principles that you can follow to improve how your garden works for you and let's face it, this year in 2020, with lockdown and all the other things that are going on, being able to get outside in the garden in a little peace and quiet with a cup of tea or a mug of coffee, or even better, a nice glass of your favourite tipple and just sit there with the sun on your face and let the world's stresses fall away, that's what gardens are supposed to do for us. If you like this podcast and you found it useful, you can find loads more information and lots more gardening advice in my brilliant book, uh, which is called I Want to Like My Garden by Rachel McCartane. It's available in ebook, so you can save the planet by downloading it and reading it, or you can actually buy the book. You can buy it on most online, garden, uh, online bookstores, so Amazon and Waterstones and Barnes and Noble. So please go and take a look. It's packed with lots of information and advice that you won't find anywhere else that I hope, well, in fact, I know you will really enjoy reading it as well. I Want to Like My Garden by Rachel McCartane. It costs £9.99 or the ebook is about £3.99, I think. And please, please, if you do buy it, and thank you, do pop a short review on. I'd love to know what people think about it. Thank you.